at verse 27. Last week we covered the first 26 verses of Mark's gospel, so you know where it is, but just a reference point, the second point, or book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 8, if you'll turn there, and we'll begin reading at verse 27, and we'll move into chapter 9 this morning, Lord willing. So if you need a Bible, we want you to raise your hand, and we'll make sure as you raise your hand that a Bible slipped to you. Anybody need a Bible at all? So we want you to follow along with us in the text that we're reading, and as we will begin at verse 27, Mark chapter 8, and uh, so just raise your hand, and Pastor Jim will make sure that you got a Bible that will be handed to you. So as you recall, that as we opened up chapter 8 last week, that Jesus was providing a miracle meal uh, for a second time in that area. This time it took place, the feeding of the 4,000, in that area that was known as Decapolis. And as we discuss, it was not in the Galilee region, but actually north and east of the Sea of Galilee, the, the Galilee region, out of the country of Israel. And it was that area of Decapolis that was known for its ten Greek cities. You can go into some of the ruins of those Greek cities. They were magnificent cities that were built. And so the people were streamed out of the cities there in that area. And they came to Jesus, who was out in the countryside. They had heard of the miracles that he was performing, the healings that he was doing. And so with them being with Jesus for three days, as we read in chapter 8, Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, and he decides to feed them because he knows that some of them have come from a long distance, and they're not going to make it home. They're hungry, and they're weak. And so what he does, as we read last week, is he took seven loaves of bread and a few fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke them and gave it to the multitude. And they ate, and they were all filled, and the disciples went about and filled up seven large baskets full of fragments that were remained. And then Jesus would leave that area come back into the Galilee region to Bethsaida and there he would heal a man who was blind and as we saw last week Jesus touched him and he could see he his eyes were open but he was seeing fuzzy and and he saw men that were like trees walking so Jesus touched him again and made him look up and his eyesight was restored so where he could see men clearly and once again I think that it was an important principle that we talked about last week that spiritually all of us were blind before we came to Jesus and he touched us and now we can see. But oftentimes in my life that I need the Lord to touch me once again so I can see people the way that the Lord desires for me to see them. That is with love and with compassion and with concern for them. And that's an ongoing touch that the Lord does for me in my life. And so we discussed that very important principle, as I mentioned, that we talked about last time. So let's pick up our text. Jesus, at that area of the Galilee, is going to leave this area. As we read, Jesus and his disciples in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8 went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples saying to them who do men say that I am and let's pray before we continue on father we do ask that you would just bless this time in your word just as we've come and drawn close to you through worship and our hearts have been prepared now I pray that our hearts would be teachable and like fertile soil ready to receive the seed of the word and Lord, we know that um, as we read this narrative of Mark, that you desire for us to look at and to learn from you and to make application for our lives. And so that's what we ask this morning, that you would do that, that we'd be settled in our seats, that our ears would be open to you, that we'd be free from distractions. And 
Lord, we know that you're reading your word. This is God-breathed, you speaking to us. So, Lord, speak to us clearly and with understanding. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus leaves that area of Bethsaida, which is the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting, not that long ago, they recently found the remains of Bethsaida, and they are excavating that area right now. And it's on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. They would leave and head north to the foot of Mount Hermon, to a place that was called Caesarea Philippi. And it's an interesting place because that's where the headwaters of the Jordan River begins. Mount Hermon is a high mountain there. It's the highest place in the nation of Israel. It gets snow up there on the mountain. They got a little ski area up there. And it begins that mountain range that extends north. And because of the spring runoffs, much what we see in this part of the country with the runoff going to begin here fairly soon with all the snow coming down, the rivers and streams form in that area. And the Jordan River actually has three forks that are started there at the base of Mount Hermon. And there at Caesarea Philippi is one of those forks that begins, and it comes right out from under the rock. There's a large rock outcrop that is there at the base of Mount Hermon, and the waters come out from under the rock, gushing out, and in the springtime, it, it, the flow is high. It's a very beautiful place. You can look in the streams, and there's trout swimming around in the stream, and you have these very big oak trees and olive trees and fig trees that are all over the place. It's just a very pretty place, and Jesus goes to that area with his disciples, and he would turn to his disciples and he would ask them this question, who do men say that I am? And that's quite a question, isn't it? Matter of fact, this is the most important question that's ever asked of man. The doors of eternity swing upon how that is answered. In verse 28, so they answer John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. So there are different opinions and different theories floating around Israel concerning who Jesus was. This one who was attracting the multitudes as he was teaching them and showing compassion to them and bringing healing to the people in the Galilee region, freeing them from the, the demons that possessed them and doing these mighty works. So who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. And we know that Herod the Tetrarch, we talked about him. He's the king that's ruling in that area of Galilee. He thought that Jesus was John the Baptist back uh, from the dead. We know that Herod had John the Baptist beheaded as we saw that story a few chapters ago so when he's hearing the miracles and the work that jesus is doing and the message that he has the repent for the kingdom of god is at hand he's thinking john the baptist is back from the dead and so john the baptist having that message as we saw as he was baptizing at the jordan river hey repent the kingdom of god is at hand you tax collectors don't collect any more than what is your status and don't be ripping the people off you soldiers you need to quit oppressing the people repent and when jesus appeared he began his ministry with the same words didn't he repent for the kingdom of god is at hand so some had reason there in the nation because of his moral teaching jesus was giving and called to repentance jesus must be john the baptist back from the dead others were saying no no he's one of the prophets he's elijah returned from heaven 
Look at the mighty works and miracles that he is doing. The blind can see, the lepers are cleansed, and he fed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish. He must be Elijah. Others were saying, no, he's one of the other prophets. Perhaps he's Jeremiah. Haven't you seen the way that he's had compassion on the multitudes, how his heart is moved by them? He's weeping over them. He must be Jeremiah because we know that Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet who cared so tenderly for the lost sheep of Israel. So the people of Israel had all kinds of different answers, who Jesus was, different opinions. And before we leave this, I do want to point this out because I think it's important for us to understand this and to be able to minister this truth to others. And that is, when the disciples were saying that he is one of the prophets, listen, he was not talking about, or they were not talking about, reincarnation. All right? And I mention that because that doctrine of reincarnation has gained popularity with the growth of the New Age and Eastern philosophies and religions and mysticism that's gaining more popularity in the Western culture and in our society. And there are even Christians that are beginning to embrace some of those things. And those who believe in reincarnation, they will say to you and to me that even the Bible teaches on reincarnation. And what they will do is they will turn to these verses here. And they will say, see, the disciples of Jesus thought that Jesus was reincarnated when they were saying that some think that you're Elijah or John the Baptist. And of course, reincarnation means appearing in a new body or even as a different form of life and living a different life than the one that you originally did. And that you can be reincarnated over and over again in different forms of life or a different individual in life. And there are those who will claim to give these startling accounts as they're taken back by some you know, hypnotic trance or a channeling of the spirit. If it is a spirit, it's a demonic spirit. Back to a previous existence in which they were a different person and you have these different testimonies. And have you ever noticed it's, it's usually somebody who was, you know, of prestige or fame or wealthy. I was this powerful, you know, king. I was this famous general. I was Cleopatra. And the people go, ooh, wow, really? And they will, those who embrace reincarnation, point to this passage and say even Jesus taught reincarnation. And and there are Christians that are misled. And they think that the Scripture supports that doctrine. And I just want to say this, that there is absolutely nothing at all in Scripture that ever supports the notion of reincarnation. Now, in this case, it was not a matter of the people thinking that the old prophets had appeared in a new form. They thought it was the same old prophets back again. Not a reincarnation, but a reappearance. They were expecting the same individuals who lived hundreds of years before. And I'll say that the idea of reincarnation is one of those doctrines of demons Paul speaks of taught by lying spirits who deceive men and try to deceive Christians. And who would want to embrace reincarnation in the first place? I mean, would you really want to come back here? The scripture says that it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. And when I am done here, my days, whether the Lord comes for me in the rapture of the church or whether my days in here, this physical body, I'm going to go home to be with the Lord. And that's what I'm looking forward to. But I, I, would, I can't think of a more depressing thought than reincarnation to come back here again and go through all the junk and stuff and go through junior high again and all of that i mean do you really want to go through that 
So reincarnation is not being talked about here, but they did have the people of Israel different opinions and answers and who they thought Jesus was. And today we know that there are those, of course, all around us that have different opinions and who they think Jesus is. Oh, he is a, was a good teacher or some prophet that lived a couple thousand years ago. He is a spiritual leader and, and was of the Christian faith, or he was a great moral teacher. All kinds of answers that people have on who Jesus is and was. And just as they did back 2,000 years ago when Jesus asked this question to his disciples. And then in verse 29, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus gets personal with his disciples. And he gets personal with us, doesn't he? And every single person has to answer this question, who do you, who do I say that Jesus is? And so Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. We know from Matthew's narrative that when Peter made that confession, you are the Christ, the anointed one. Now remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Christ is not a name, it's a title. It is the Greek from, uh, for the Hebrew, Messiah. And, and the word Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one. And Christ is the, the Greek that means anointed one. Now, it was a customary in those days when a king was crowned, they would anoint that king with oil. We read that just a couple Wednesdays ago in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that as it was Samuel the prophet that came to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king of Israel, that he anointed David as the new king. And so they would anoint you with oil, pouring oil over your head in an anointing ceremony by which that individual, that man, was recognized and acknowledged as the new king. So Jesus, using that title, Christ or Messiah, was that signifying that he was anointed by God to be the king. And they were looking, the people of Israel, for the king to come anointed by God. And here Peter, as Jesus turned to them, and what is interesting about Caesarea Philippi, that that rock outcrop, it was a place that the Romans built all these idols. And you can go there and see where they excavated all these different idols as Jesus is standing there with that backdrop saying, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, with this 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 response here to Christ, the Son of the living God, as it is Matthew that gives us that full response of Peter. And we know that it was Peter, when he made that confession, that Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That was his name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And you shall now be called Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in that passage, Jesus uses two Greek words for stone. Peter, you're no longer Simon, which means shifting sand. But now you are Peter, Petros, which means small stone. Peter, rocky, upon this, this rock that is Petra, which means a large stone, a massive stone, that, that rock outcrop in the background. Peter, little stone, Petra. Petras, upon Petra, the large stone of your confession, I will build my church. And for 2,000 years, the Lord has been building his church, hasn't he? With those who come and say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. 
So Peter, receiving revelation from heaven, oh, you're not John the Baptist, you're not Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, but you are the Messiah, the anointed one sent by God. And then Jesus would charge his disciples that they should tell no one. The time has not yet come for me to be revealed to the world. Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, but he does not yet reveal himself to the world. In verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So now we come to something new in Matthew's gospel here. It's the first time that we've seen Jesus in Matthew's or Mark's account here of Jesus speaking about his death and burial and his resurrection. Jesus talking about his crucifixion. Jesus now is only six months away from the cross. And Jesus began to teach them that he is going to go to the cross. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. Now, he never talked about his crucifixion without also talking about his resurrection. And so he's revealed to them that he is the Messiah, the Christ. And then he began to talk about his crucifixion after he reveals to them who it is that he is. Now, the, the disciples are struggling with this, and we're going to see that. Peter's going to be struggling with this. Because they were waiting, the people of Israel, for the Messiah to come on the scene. And they had the commonly accepted concept that Messiah was going to come and establish the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what the Old Testament prophecies said. That when Messiah comes, he's going to come in great power, great glory. That he's going to come and he's going to rule over the earth. He's going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. That was their concept of the Messiah coming. Because that's what was written by the Old Testament prophets. And so that's what we're looking for. We're looking for Messiah to come. And I'm sure that those disciples thought when it was revealed that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, Peter, blessed are you that they're thinking, all right, we're going to see the kingdom coming right now. Because that's what we're told in God's promises that's going to take place. But guys, you need to remember this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And they're going, what? What do you mean you're going to die? And they were confused. And so as Peter here is making that confession, he's talking about death, all of a sudden we see that there's, there's this confusion. Uh, they were confused clear up until the time that he was crucified. They didn't come into full understanding what had taken place until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they're looking for the Messiah to come. Peter acknowledging, Thou art the Christ, he began to teach that the Son of Man, which is the title of Messiah given to him, that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected, be killed after three days rise again. He's trying to prepare them for that. But it's not what they were expecting Messiah to do at this time. They were expecting the Messiah to set up the kingdom right away. But I'm going to be rejected, crucified. Don't you guys also know that the Old Testament prophets spoke of that the Messiah must suffer? Isaiah said that he is despised and rejected of men. That has to be fulfilled. He's like the lamb that is led to the slaughter. He's going to be numbered with the transgressors at his death. That David would write a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene as David in Psalm 22 described his death by crucifixion. That we know that Daniel the prophet 
would say that there's going to be 69 weeks after the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem there in Daniel chapter 9. It's going to come the Messiah, coming of Messiah. But then, but then he's going to be cut off. And that had to be fulfilled. And so he's seeking to prepare them on his suffering and death and resurrection. And that was shocking to them when he spoke of his death. And, and as far as their concept of Messiah, their brains would just turn off. And they would not understand until later, after his death and burial and resurrection. One of the things that I do want to remind us of that I think is important, that when we talk with people and we're discipling them or we're witnessing to them, that the great thing that we can do is make sure that you let people understand who Jesus really is. Because sometimes people are saying, you know, who, was he just a great prophet? Was he a spiritual leader? No, he is the Christ, the Son of God. And reveal to them who exactly is the second person in the Godhead Trinity. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. That Jesus, that he came to this world and died for you and for me. And they go, wow, you mean, you mean God shed his blood for me? The Son of God? God in the person of Jesus Christ died for me? Speak of his deity and his divinity to people so they understand clearly who he is and then what he did. And so as he's speaking to them of these things, they're, they're confused and will continue as we will see clear up into the time of his crucifixion. And he spoke this word openly in verse 32. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, Peter. Peter was good at doing that. And as you read the other, other gospel narratives, it indicates the language that Peter did it more than once. Peter was rebuking the Lord for declaring that he was going to be crucified. And I believe that Peter was just only expressing really his own personal feelings as a man who loved the Lord and didn't want him to talk about death. Peter was saying, Lord, you must not talk in this way. This is terrible. Spare yourself. Look how popular you are now. In verse 33, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter saying, Lord, don't talk this way. Man, it's just been revealed that you're the Christ, you're Messiah. We're talking kingdom. We're talking about it's time for you to be crowned. Look how popular you are with the people. I don't want to talk about the suffering, dying stuff. And Jesus says, you get behind me, Satan. And I'm glad that I wasn't Peter at this time. I mean, can you imagine the Lord turning to you and saying that? That's a very heavy rebuke. And the Lord is rebuking Peter for his lack of discernment. He really doesn't understand. And I think the other guys were the same way, really. They just didn't express it like Peter did. They didn't understand the things of God. They were only understanding the things of men. And if they would have understood the things of God, they would know that Messiah would have to be cut off, that Messiah would have to be slain, that, that Jesus would have to go to the cross of Calvary for you and for me to die for us. Because there is a greater need than to be freed from the, the yoke of the Roman government. There was to be that need, the greatest need that man has, and that is forgiveness of sin. And Jesus knew that if he didn't go to the cross that there was no hope for man. That if he didn't shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin, for redemption, for our, our, our reconciliation to the Father, there would be no hope for us. He 
was the only one that could die for you and for me. He is the only one that could take care of the sin problem because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus is talking in the eternal perspective. These guys are thinking of the immediate satisfaction. Peter, you got it all wrong. But I also, when I read this, I get encouraged. And what I mean by this is here it was a few minutes previously, Peter, this heavyweight prophet, and revelation directly from the Father upon which the church is built. You're the Christ. Oh, blessed are you, because flesh and blood did not teach this to you, but my Father, you are hearing directly from God. And Peter, God is using you. Here's the keys to the kingdom. And Peter's right on the money. And then a few minutes later, he's off the wall. He misses it totally. And you see, what can happen with me is I know that I'm the speak truth, that I want to have godly wisdom that I give to others. I want to be careful and discerning in what I say to others. And there are times where I can speak to those and I can say you know, things and it's like right on and, and it's right at the right moment. But I also know that there have been a time or two that I've missed the mark, that I've said things that weren't right or were not godly and I missed it and I messed up like Peter and I am so thankful for the grace of the Lord that he doesn't say okay that's it Jeff I'm done with you he didn't do that with Peter do you think the father is here going oh Peter I gave you revelation and 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 here you are being used and then you turn around and you say this if I would have known that you were going to do that I would have used somebody else like John or James but God the Father wasn't taken back by this. And in so doing, I realized that the Lord doesn't give up on me. Peter's going to make some more blunders. We're going to see some real big ones as we continue through Mark's gospel. But he's going to be forgiven. And he's going to be restored. And he's going to be used of the Lord big time and in a powerful, remarkable way. And that just speaks of the incredible grace of our Lord. And I'm so thankful that I can go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for saying that, or it's off the mark here, and I understand that. I'm so thankful that the Lord didn't say, I'm through with you. But I can move on and continue to minister. In verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You must deny yourself. Now, how far this is from the world's position today, the world is emphasizing we need to assert ourselves. We need to focus on self. You need to make yourself number one. And Jesus here, he says something completely different. He says, if you come after me, you must deny yourself. It starts by realizing that you don't have it, that you are in need. You deny yourself, pick up your cross, just as Jesus took that cross and he walked down. The narrow streets of Jerusalem called the Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrows. And Jesus would fall under the weight of that cross that he was carrying. He couldn't carry it any further. It was because of the beatings that he went through. The religious council would beat him. He would stand before the soldiers of Rome and they would put that cat of nine tails on his back. And they beat him. And Isaiah says that they pulled out his beard. And he was marred more than any other man. That when he stood before the crowds, it was Pilate that said, Behold the man, look at him. Look what they've done to him. That they put that crown of thorns around his head. He'd lost so much blood. And there he sees carrying that cross down that street of Jerusalem to that place of execution. He would collapse under that cross. He couldn't carry it any further. 
You know, Jesus never asked us to do something that he wasn't willing to do. And you see, for so many years, I thought, okay, I'm to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow after you, Lord. And I kind of picture for so long, here is Jesus kind of out in front of me going, come on, Jeff, come on. And I'm there carrying my cross, and this is heavy, Lord, and this is, this is hard, Lord. And, and he's out in front of me coming, saying, be strong and suck it up, Jeff, and bear the cross boldly and bear the cross proudly. But I've kind of learned something over the years in, in praying about this and considering this. And realize that what the Lord is saying is let the cross do its work in breaking you totally to where you admit, Lord, that I need you, that I need you, and without you I'm not going to make it. It's total breaking and total honesty and humility and surrender to the Lord before the Lord. And that is denying yourself, pick up your cross and follow after me, he says. He goes on in verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. If you live for yourself, you're going to lose it. My daughter, Rachel, she was wearing one of actually is kind of a hand-me-down from Barbara. Barbara had this T-shirt that she bought it at um, one of the Dare to Shares that Marcy took the youth to a few years back. And now Rachel, who just turned 13, is wearing the T-shirt. And she had it on yesterday, and I like it. On the front it says, Loser. And then it has this verse on the back of it. And I think that's pretty good. Hey, if you really want to be something, be a loser. If you really want to live, then you die. If you want to live, then you die to self. The self-promotion, self-exaltation. He goes on and he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now you remember in the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness that one of those temptations is Jesus was taken up on a high mountain and shown all the kingdoms of the world by Satan. And Satan said, All the world is yours. All these kingdoms are yours if you'd bow down and worship me. Interesting that it was... Satan that was offering the whole world to Jesus, if you bow down and worship me. You see, Satan will offer you the whole world, but he usually doesn't have to do that, does he? So the question that we can ask is, what would it take for you to sell your soul, to exchange your soul to Satan? Would you do it for a billion dollars? Would you do it for a hundred million dollars? Would you do it for $10 million? But yet people sell their souls for a whole lot less. And people have told me, and perhaps you've heard similar things as you share with others. I don't want to follow Jesus right now, Pastor Jeff. I mean, what would my boyfriend think? I don't want to come to Christ right now. I'm too busy. I'm pursuing my career I'm busy doing other things. I got these hobbies, these possessions. I want this prestige. I want this popularity, whatever it might be. And people end up selling their souls for a whole lot less. And they don't respond to the gospel message because of some cheap trinket or some passing pleasure. And when you really think about it, it doesn't make sense. 
What shall a man, a woman give for the exchange of their soul? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? When J.D. Rockefeller died, the New York Times reporter asked his estate lawyer, how much you know, money did Mr. Rockefeller leave behind? And the lawyer gave this classic answer. He said, everything. He left everything. And guess what? We're going to leave everything. And some of us may say, well, that's not much, but you know what? That's okay, because no matter if we have little or we have much, it's all going to go away. We can't take it with us. It was Jesus, as you recall, and he told that parable. There was a sower going out to sow seeds, and he sowed seed on the ground to where the plant came up, but then the weeds came out and choked out the plant. He said, that's the one, that's the person that... The seed of the word of God is planted in their hearts, but because of the cares of the world comes and chokes out any fruit that comes up. The cares of the world. And we live in a world and society where it is emphasized that, listen, the most toys that you have, whoever has the most toys at the end wins. And that is not what the Bible teaches us or God's mentality for us. And people can pursue this thing and this pleasure and, and this popularity and this career. And I understand that we have things. And I understand that we desire to do well in our jobs or expand our businesses. I understand. But listen, if there's anything that comes between me and my devotion to the Lord, if it has priority over the Lord, if it keeps me from the Lord, it is an idol. And it's going to go away. When we were going out for Rachel's birthday, she wanted to go to a restaurant over at Centura and for dinner. And so we were going out there, and for the thousandth time, we passed that dump on the right-hand side of Highway 34. It's got all those cars, and it's got old boats in there, and they're all rusted and broken and all this. And I was thinking, as I had been preparing for this message, what a great illustration. The things that we can work so hard for and desire to get and get so uptight about. And I understand we can enjoy the things that we have. But understand this, that the things that we have are going to end up in the dump. And they're going to go away, and they're going to burn up. And when Jesus told that parable of the rich you know, fool that built bigger barns, the tragedy wasn't that he had bigger barns. The tragedy was that Jesus said he wasn't rich towards God. We are to store up our treasures in heaven and prioritize heaven because what we do for Christ is what's going to last for eternity. And that's what Jesus is saying. Aren't you thankful that Jesus came and set the record straight? This is truth. And he goes on and he says, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So Jesus telling his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Now he's saying, I am going to come back in the glory of his Father. Messiah will come back with his holy angels. He's going to come in great glory and power to establish the kingdom of God, but not in my first advent, not at this time. I'm going to be rejected, turned over to the scribes and Pharisees, killed on the third day. I will rise again after my death. I'm going to come back after I send to the Father, and then I will establish the kingdom in my second coming. And if you are ashamed of me and my words, then of him or her, the Son of Man will be ashamed when I come back in power and glory. 
Who do men say that I am? And who do you say that Jesus is? And all throughout the scriptures, there are those that had to make decisions. We see that very clearly when Moses came down from the mountain of God. Realized that the people had sinned, dancing naked around a golden calf. He said, whoever's on the Lord's side, let them come to stand with me. And it was the sons of Levi that strapped on their swords and stood for the Lord. Joshua said, towards the end of his life, as the people were beginning to collect idols, he says, put those idols away and you need to choose this day whom it is that you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And the people were challenged to make a stand for the Lord. Elijah the prophet said, how long will you falter between two opinions going back and forth between God and Baal? If Baal be God, then serve him. But if the Lord is God, then serve him. And they were forced to make a decision that day. And as I go through the Bible, we see that people were called to make decisions. And the most important decision that any man or any woman will make on this day, because today is the day of salvation, is concerning Jesus Christ. And who do you say that I am? For most of us, we have said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And we've come in faith, understanding who he is and what he did for us and dying for our sins and rose again on the third day. And he says to us, blessed are you, for you will be with me when I return with power and great glory. That's our future. And we're going to spend eternity with the Lord. And if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. The question is asked, who do you say that he is? Because no one else will save you. Nothing else will save you. Listening to a Bible study will not save you. Calvary Chapel will not save you. Pastor Jeff cannot save you. Belonging to a church will not save you. It's only Jesus Christ. He is the author of eternal life. He is the only one that can save you and has provided forgiveness of sin. He is alive. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he loves you. And he says, come to me. And as you surrender your heart to him in faith, and realizing that you are in need, denying yourself and saying, I am a sinner, that Jesus, I come to you, I believe in you, be my Lord and Savior. That's where we have the promise of eternal life. And so Jesus talking to his disciples about these things. In chapter 9, he's going to show really who he is. As he said to them, surely I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now there are those that you can read this and and Jesus seems to be saying in chapter or verse 1 here of chapter 9, speaking to his disciples, hey, some of you aren't going to, to taste death, but what you're going to see is that you're going to see the kingdom of God present with power. And so we read this, and sometimes people think, wow, Jesus, he's talking about his second coming. And of course, that didn't come in the lifetime of his disciples. All these disciples would taste death. Jesus didn't come back 2,000 years ago. So some people read this verse here in verse 1, they're troubled because obviously the second coming didn't take place. And some have even gone as far as to say that Jesus was misled as to the time of the second coming. And we know that Jesus was not mistaken. Remember this, that if my interpretation of Scripture would make it appear that Jesus was mistaken, then my interpretation is wrong. If my interpretation of what Jesus said would make what Jesus said wrong or foolish or questionable, then my interpretation is wrong. So many times people misinterpret the words of Jesus, and sometimes they do here. I don't believe that Jesus is talking about the second coming here. 
But I believe what he's talking about is some of you, that is specifically as we continue to read Peter, James, and John, you're going to see a powerful display of the glory of God. What it is that Jesus is going to be like after his death and resurrection, they're going to see Jesus in his glory as we read in verse 2 of the Mount of Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He takes them up. We know the other disciples, as we're going to see next time, that they're left down on the mountain below. He takes these three individuals, and oftentimes we know that that Jesus would take Peter, James, and John on different occasions, separated them out from the others to see a special working of the Lord, and here they're going to see very, something very special. As Jesus is on top of that mountain, he begins to shine. It says that he was transfigured before them, and that word in the Greek, transfigured, is the Greek word metamorphosize. It is the same word describing what happens to a caterpillar inside a cocoon. We know from Matthew's account also that his face shone like the sun. And I believe that this transfiguration shows us a couple interesting things. Number one, that Jesus did what no other man ever did in the history of the planet. He went through all his life without sin. He glowed. He was metamorphosized. And I believe at this time, had he had chosen, he could have gone right up into heaven at this point because he passed the test. He went through all his life, through, through childhood, through adolescence, through adulthood, without sinning. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to die. He could have gone right up into heaven at this time because he's the perfect Lamb of God. On his own merit, he fulfilled the law. But he didn't. He didn't shoot up right into heaven at this point. He's at the high point of the nation, the, the high point of his popularity in ministry. But you see, he would come down from this mountain so he could go up another mountain, Mount Calvary. So the sinless one might die for me. The one who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. So this story is amazing theologically, but as we read the narrative, we also want to make application. We know in verse 4, Elijah appeared to him, Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So we know from Luke's account that they were talking with Jesus about his death. Jesus talking with Moses, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. They come and they dialogue with Jesus. The law, of course, points to Christ. The prophets speak of Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. And they talk about his death. Jesus' face was altered, shining like the sun. It amazed these disciples as we read verse 5. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, It is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because they did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. In verse 8, suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. So here's this amazing event, the transfiguration. Jesus' face is shining. The disciples are amazed. He's talking with Elijah and Moses about his death. As we close quickly here this morning, three points I'd like to make that we learned from Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Let's begin with Moses. Wasn't there another time that Moses' face was shining? 
You know Exodus chapter 34. He was on another mountain, the mountain of God, down in the Sinai, down in Arabia, actually. As he was up there on the mountain receiving the law of God. He was receiving the instructions to the tabernacle. And he comes down from the mountain, as we read in Exodus 34, and his face is glowing. And the people are going, whoa, Moses, your face is glowing. Put a veil on your face. And so Moses put a veil on his face. But what is interesting, that 1,500 years later, that Paul the Apostle gives us some insight as he was writing to the church at Corinth in his second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and tells us that Moses put a veil on his face, not just to hide the glory of his countenance, but actually that that glow would begin to fade away. And he didn't want the people to see that. And he'd have to go back up on the mountain and he'd be glowing once again. But under that veil, his countenance, that that glowing, that light would begin to, to fade. And then Paul writes in the chapter about a veil over the hearts of the children of Israel. I just want to say this, that if you want to shine of the Lord, shine in your countenance in the Lord, the key is you need to be spending time with the Lord like Moses did in the presence of God. And here he is in the presence of Jesus and he's shining. And if we are not doing that, then our countenance will just begin to fade. So ask yourself a question. We all need to ask this. Have I been reflecting Jesus, the light of Jesus, the glory of Jesus in some way? Or has there been a veil over your heart? Where you can honestly say this morning, it hasn't been a priority. I haven't been spending time with him. Oh, I believe in him. He's my Lord, my Savior, but I really haven't been spending time with them. And your countenance shows it. And that light and that glory began to fade. The answer is you go back up on the mountain. And you spend some time with the Lord. And, and parents, one of the things is Moses came down with the law and, and he comes down with the law and he says, thus saith the Lord and thus saith the Lord. They're going, okay, all right, all right. Moses, you're glowing. Wow. And parents and even those of us who minister, sometimes we have to bring the law. Bring down the law on our kids. Sometimes we have to bring correction and rebuke. But I'll tell you what, if you have the countenance of where you're shining and the glory of the Lord is reflecting from you, people are going to say, okay, all right. You've been with the Lord. I can receive that. Person number two, Elijah. You realize that he was on the same mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And you know the stories you read there in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. And Elijah had this mountaintop experience where he called down fire from heaven. But then he got word from Jezebel that I'm going to lop your head off, Elijah. So he gets all depressed and discouraged. He runs down to the mountain of God. He's in a cave. And he's, he's just there going, God, kill me. As he made his journey to that place. He's sold down. He's going through such difficulties. And it says that there was a mighty earthquake and then there was a great wind and then there was fire. But you see, the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the mighty wind. The Lord wasn't in the fire, but in the still small voice of the Lord that Elijah heard. And as you make your journey through life, there are times where our lives get shaken up. We go through fiery trials. The winds of adversity begin to blow into our life. And what we need to do is we need to be ones that we're hearing the voice of the Lord. So we're spending time with the Lord, 
hearing the voice of the Lord that leads to point number three, and that is Jesus. Here's Peter once again sticking his foot in his mouth. He's saying, oh, it's good for us to be here. He's afraid. He doesn't know what to say is what Matthew account tells us as well. And, and then the voice of the Father is heard saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Peter, you just made a confession a few days ago that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why are you wanting to make three tabernacles, putting my son on the same level as Moses and Elijah? You need to see him and hear him. So all of a sudden, as they're afraid, they look up and they say, only Jesus. I want to end with this. It's only Jesus. He's the only one that can save you. You look to him for salvation. And he's the one that's going to be your refuge and your strength. He said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. You see, he came to forgive you of your sins as he would provide forgiveness of sin as he hung on Calvary's cross. And for you to come to him and have that life as today is the day of salvation, but also in life for all of us to experience life more abundantly. And if you really want to be fulfilled and satisfied and have a heart of joy and true peace in your life, it comes from him alone. In a closeness with him and spending time with him, and learning of him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for Jesus coming and speaking truth to us and demonstrating his glory and who he is. The Lord, most of all, demonstrating his love for us. And, Father, I know that most of us in this room, we've answered that question personally that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But if anyone is here or you're out in a coffee shop, that you've never said yes to Jesus, you have never personally said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is the author of eternal life. There's nothing else, none other, no religious system. There's no church. There's no religious leader that can save you, only Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, you know, I kind of live my life in a way where I don't think God could accept me or love me. That is not the truth. Jesus died for every manner of sin, and he loves you, and he's knocking on the door of your heart this morning. And the question is being asked, who do you say that he is? And today, if you've never settled that, you can do that right now. He loves you. He proved his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And you just turn. It's a free gift of salvation. It comes by coming in faith and recognizing that he is the Son of God who died for me and confessing that I am a sinner. And the scripture says, repent. That was the message of Jesus. It simply says and means turn from the direction you're going, turn from what you've been thinking and turn to Jesus and surrender to him. Today is the day of salvation. And so you can pray, Jesus, come into my heart, be my Lord and Savior. I want to make sure that, that I get this right with you. Because I believe that you are the Son of God who died for me. I am a sinner. And thank you for dying for me, Jesus. Come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you were put into a grave and you rose again after three days. Thank you for saving me, Jesus. Thank you for loving me and forgiving me. I surrender my heart to you right now, totally. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. 